the system is essentially creating a mindset in youth and in families that's normalised to basically live a life that um, competes against your various policing systems and also sets you up to continue on going into youth detention, being disconnected from community, making it less likely for you to ever get a normal education to, to get work. And then the word I hate, I've heard it used quite a few times, it becomes a graduation to, to jail. That's Jai Cardona, a youth detention programs coordinator and mentor who calls himself a brother to hundreds of youth detainees in Darwin and Alice Springs. Jai was made to feel like an outsider growing up as an Indigenous teenager in Townsville, neglected and targeted because of his race. Eight in the morning, my mate and I um, noticed a car started circling towards us and they started hurling abuse at us. Didn't think anything too much of it, so this is a bit weird. And then they started throwing out the words, you know, your, your abo this, your um, coon and all those other things. And as a, and that was also in year eight. Um, and we were chased and, and they stopped and they cornered us and jumped out of the car with, with um, bats. It was this negative stereotyping that made him and his friends resent authority and fostered the us versus them mentality that he sees play out across the youth justice system. And, you know, and there was the jokes around, oh, yeah, you know, this is where black fellas this is where black fellas go. Um, and I thought, oh, okay, you know, um, that's just one of the pathways that, that we go on as um, Aboriginal boys. And it is so toxic. Jai has had to deal with post-traumatic stress from his young life and learn how to reshape his perceptions. It's been a tough journey that's fueled the fire within him to be there for others facing similar struggles. But that's where things start working a bit more is when that respect comes because if you show respect and boundaries to youth then they'll start reciprocating back. Jai has an intimate knowledge of how youth detention works and the impact it has on young minds. He also gives an insight into where we are failing as a society to stop future generations of young offenders being institutionalised. You're building that narrative in their head, building it, building it and building it. And what we see is that you grow into an adult that basically hates yourself. Welcome to Young Blood, a podcast all about young men's health. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our mission to talk about the stuff that matters and isn't talked about enough. Let's do it. This episode has been made possible by Kookaburra Homes, the home builder that cares about the community. Kookaburra is big on investing in projects that support mental health and is an awesome supporter of Young Blood's mission to improve the lives of young men by opening up these conversations that we need to have. Uh, so just paint a picture of what it was like growing up in Townsville as a young Indigenous male. Yeah, so I um, actually grew up probably at a really interesting time in, in Townsville. Uh, so, so I was born in 91. I loved just riding my bike, playing footy, um, going to the shops, like all the different things that you'd expect as a kid. Um, always there was a lot of tensions in Townsville, um, particularly when, uh, when I was eight, well, when I was in year eight, um, I was 12 years old, and that's when uh, some of the Palm Island uh, stuff happened with the some of the riot stuff, um, particularly with um, Mr. Germagy passing away um, in the watch house there. Um, so there was a lot of, there's always, I guess, a bit of uh, racial tensions in Townsville. Um, and being a young Aboriginal um, bloke I, or boy, I, I guess I found myself getting kind of um, sucked into the narratives and I guess the system. There was a lot of tensions and particularly um, 
tensions between the community and um, policing. Um, and so in year eight, I, I found myself in situations where I was having to justify myself um, as an Aboriginal person to, to others. And that, that was kind of based around when the Palm Island riots uh, happened, but more particularly that was um, the conversations around Mr. Jumaji who passed away in the watch house um, to some pretty horrific injuries. And I remember being in school, um, I was lucky enough to be a to have been picked for a, uh, a scholar, a sort of like a top scholar uh, program, um, which I was proud of, but I, I found myself away from my friendship circles and in with another sort of, I guess, group of people who may not have understood how I grew up and how my family grew up. And the debate of Palm Island came up uh, quite a few times. Um, and I found it really difficult being a 12, 13 year old and I'm trying to sort my, or I guess, figure out what my identity is um, and, be, and be quite proud of who I am, uh, my culture and my diversity. And uh, I found myself having to justify things and having teachers and youth say, you can't build, you can't build anything on Palm Island or, or any Aboriginal communities because I'll just burn it down. Um, my initial reaction was, I mean, I guess just being very hurt by it all and seeing the hurt that it caused, um, I guess, the, the wider community, the Palm Island community, the families affected, um, my family, um, I got pretty angry. Um, and then I became the, uh, the angry, I guess, Aboriginal kid in, in that classroom and, and, of course, then there were the jokes of, oh, yeah, well, you'll just burn that down. And here I am sitting in this classroom um, because I was... Well, apparently doing quite well within the um, education system and I was quite successful, my label was taken straight to being that angry Aboriginal kid and I remember that being quite frustrating uh, and hurtful for me um, from all that good work that I can do and all the positivity that there's this broader perception that um, seemed to see the symptoms of things and judge upon that in that way and so you were really having to battle against that because you were doing all these good things but it was like mm. people didn't want to take notice of that they only wanted to blame you for being who you are and focus on the negative and then of course that works in in, in a cyclical way where it brings out more of that negative emotion and those negative mm. uh, reactions because you're feeling backed into a corner by the way people are responding to you yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as we know, like those um, adolescent years and particularly going to the teenage years, you're really looking for people and mentors to really guide you, um, to allow you to become who you want to be. Um, and schools are supposed to be a safe space. Um, and if you're going to a school and you're looking at someone with authority, which is your, your teachers and your principals, um, and they're basically um, giving you a label, um, you start to, to believe it and you start to act accordingly as well. Um, and it's a, it's a very, um, I guess it's a, it's a very frustrating time. You, you're put into these systems or these other environments which are basically telling you um, what you may be or may not be based off your background. Um, so it was quite, it was quite frustrating. Um, there was another example of even I was with one of my um, best mates and we'd, we'd ride to school through Curl and through Banford Lane. Um, it's a quite a busy um, 
street road um eight in the morning my mate and i um noticed a car started circling towards us and they started hurling abuse at us didn't think anything too much of it so this is a bit weird and then they started throwing out the words you know your your abo this your um coon and all those other things and as a and that was also in year eight um and we were chased and and they stopped and they cornered us and jumped out of the car with with um bats and luckily we were able to sort of maneuver our way around them um whether they intended on actually physically harming us i think at that stage it didn't really matter (laughs) um and then i remember going to the school we went straight to the principal um and we were basically told did you get the license plate and we kind of said of course we didn't i mean what 12 year old kid is going to get chased by a, a car full of uh, adults with weapons and then basically say hey hey stop uh just wait one second get the backpack off open up the backpack get the piece of paper sharpen your pencil and just write it down it's, it's not gonna happen um but so there, there got- wasn't like the sympathy there there wasn't obviously the the caring reaction that you would expect from someone in that position no 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 not at all and um that afternoon we weren't offered i guess anything to as as far as um helping us get home we didn't have mobile phones at that time (laughs) um i remember that afternoon we spent three hours um trying to get home for a for a 40 what would usually be a 25 30 minute bike ride um and and that just placed these little bits in in our heads that um there's a bit to be annoyed at what sort of message did that send you how would you describe that when you being chased by people just for being indigenous and then you've got people who are supposed to help you and they don't care either so what feelings does that bring up in a young person yeah so i mean i I remember it quite clearly and i felt helpless i felt that um there wasn't support or places to go i felt police weren't somewhere to to go towards i felt teachers and uh principals weren't people who could support us i think after telling my family and seeing the helplessness in in their eyes i felt a bit lost um i felt a bit dehumanized i'm not a dark shade of brown or or black or those things but i can still get pinpointed out um what is it was a harsh reality for me at the time. And so that's when I started, I guess, started trying to form this identity in my head of who who I was, but it's formed off these experiences. And I think a, a big part of everything is having a sense of community, being a part of that community. Um, so if you look at a place like Townsville, quite a, um, it's a decent sized community as a whole. Um, we didn't feel part of that community because we felt like we were unwanted from it um, and we were, I guess, a hindrance. And then as part of the school, we definitely didn't feel part of that community because we felt that we weren't supported and it, and it, didn't, it didn't matter what we thought. Um, so we built our own communities with people that could empathise us with our friends and our families and, um, and that sort of, yeah. What did that lead to for you and you guys created your own group and and that gave you that identity and belonging that everyone needs to nourish who they are as a person but what sort of path did that lead you down the village is about connection as humans we we need connection as a baby you connect to your 
your mother, your, your parents and things like that, if you're not feeling connected to your community, um, you, f- you look for ways where you can be connected. Um, and I saw mates look for ways for doing that, whether it um, be drinking early on um, and, I guess, getting up to some things late at night um, that, I guess, gives them that exhilaration but also makes them feel connected. Yeah, so I think it, there's always that search for it. Um, and I guess that's where the alcohol and drugs and things that, like that can, can come in sometimes um, through that connection. But we were always looking for people we could trust. Um, there was a, I guess, when you've been let down by people with positions and power, you tend to not uh, trust that. So you, so you start looking for people, you start looking for power yourself because you feel disempowered. Um, and sometimes taking things into your own hands um, was a way of feeling empowered again and able to connect. And so obviously that's where that gang mentality comes into it and that's how those sorts of things are fostered in those communities where people aren't given that uh, acceptance and that love that they that they need. They go and create it for themselves. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of labels um, around too and, and, and gangs are kind of an easy yeah it's like a throwaway to... way of saying it where you can just group it all together and it's, you know it's easy for the media to say it that way and yeah sp- yeah and it's another a box it's another box to 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 be able to be put into and i mean just the term gang brings up um i guess an identity in its own um so yeah and obviously there's plenty of groups that actually call themselves gangs and, and market themselves mm. that way but there's plenty out there where it's just you know groups of young people that are hanging out together and they'll be called the same thing um so i think you got to be careful with those those labels and the connotations that they bring as well when did your mates start going into youth detention there's always one story with um one of my best mates his cousin used to um he was a year year or two older than us and he used to ride his bike with us uh in the mornings to school um and he'd just disappear for a few weeks and then he'd kind of he'd come back and then he'd sort of disappear and then come back. And it was all sort of, I guess, normalised for a while. I'd say from about 12 or 13, um, I started seeing um, people that I knew going into Cleveland Youth Detention Centre up in Townsville. Um, and it became a normal thing for me in my head. And, you know, and there was the jokes around, oh, yeah, you know, this is where black fellas this is where black fellas go. Um, and I thought, oh, okay, you know, um, that's just one of the pathways that, that we go on as um, Aboriginal boys. And it was so toxic. I feel really um, yuck even thinking that's sort of how I normalised it. And it wasn't until I was probably about 20 where someone said, hey, it's pretty messed up that um, we've got all our community, our, our mob going into youth detention. And I sort of thought about it and was like, shit yeah <laughs> it's um it's 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 horrible and i wish i could go back to being that 13 year old um who thought that that was a um potentially like a normalized thing that's not traumatic i didn't think it was going to impact hugely on someone's life um but i wish that um i had that conversation as a 13 year old um i was you know i'm very privileged to have not been put into the situation where I've been in youth detention as a um, or a detainee, but just having that narrative in my head 
and and then of course being Aboriginal as well, um, the odds were stacked up against me. Yeah, for sure. And obviously, I can't imagine what that's like, but you definitely paint a very clear picture of it. And you must see examples in the young people that you work with now. You must see yourself in them a lot of the time, and and who you were growing up and terms of the way that you used to think and how these guys think and take it upon yourself to obviously you can't go back and talk to your younger self but you can talk to these guys and try and change some things for them which is massively powerful um what trauma did you experience growing up obviously you mentioned that scenario with those guys chasing you um was there other instances as well that added to your your traumatic um experience yeah so um i guess um it was only a few years ago, I'm 28 now, um, that I found out that I had complex PTSD. Um, and that comes from a pretty much a childhood uh, of, I guess, seeing traumatic instances and um, I guess being um, exposed to things that, I guess, uh, kind of put me into that fight or flight mode. Um, generally, I was, I was probably in that fight or flight mode for a lot of my... Um, adolescent years now you've got your ptsd which you can have a look at it as a, um, a barrel of wine um and basically you've got your um one big incident which is the axe and that's thrown into the barrel and the barrel of wine starts leaking whereas complex ptsd and complex trauma um which is becoming more and more prevalent in society I guess it can be a lot more hidden. There can be a lot more smaller things. So complex trauma can be you have your barrel of wine sitting there and you might have a few axes being thrown at it and it's leaking, but then you've got someone at the top of the barrel opening it and putting teaspoon or teaspoon of vinegar in over time. So it's all these little things that have been put into your head. And that's what we're finding a lot with a lot of the kids is that they've got this complex trauma where it may not be, you may have a few big incidences in your life, but if there's things going on uh, with your relationships with family, which um, may be neglectful, whether it be physical or emotional or spiritual, that can happen on a daily basis. That vinegar keeps going in and going in. The wine is the thing that makes you happy. So with the PTSD, one instance, you've got the wine, your serotonin and your dopamine just um, pouring out from that. And then you've got your wine with your complex serotonin, dopamine and stuff that makes you happy. And it's slowly been put off. And I guess it's where the other term gaslighting is um, quite big as well. And so what has worked for you um, in confronting that and uh, learning to see things differently and understand what had happened to you over the years? How have you been able to make progress around that? Yeah, look, it's... Um, I've definitely, uh, oh geez, I've, I've fallen over so many times um, with this. I, I had a, a, I guess, through the complex PTSD and not understanding what was going on, I um, picked up a pretty bad, um, well, a pretty impactful um, drinking issue. Um, I drank a lot. I drank a lot to cover up. Um, I numbed myself and numbed myself. Um, I shut off from relationships because it's part of the, um, you know, the, the attachment insecurities that you get, um, particularly, you know, we talk about people in positions of power with, um, with education and, and police and, and, you know, you extend that into your, your family as well. Um, 
you kind of um, look to try and bring power into your, back into yourself. Um, and sometimes power means not hurting, which also means being numb or being in control. Um, so, yeah, so I, I fell down a heap of times. One of the best things I I probably did was taking time to understand myself and really talking. I think talking was probably one of the best things that I've I've done and it doesn't have, and it can be in a roundabout way, but just having conversations with my mates um, about, yeah, like, this was a bit weird or I feel strange about this or um, some of the social norms that we have with blokes. Um, you know, we, we laugh, like, oh, yeah, the miso is still flogging you up. Um, but I had a mate who actually was getting flogged up by his miso and just learning that these aren't norms but we're all going through stuff was really big. And just to talk without judgment, it was also healing to understand that I can control my life and the decisions I make I guess as an adult now, um, I can actually be self-determined in my life and I can change my environment. And, and that's where all trauma and everything stems from. It's from your environment. It's your body and your brain trying to cope to the environment. Um, and you were looking for control throughout that, which is something that we all want. And then that mm -hmm. realisation that you could draw that from within and it wasn't going to be found in a bottle wall by running away from yourself. Um, but obviously not an easy realization to come to and one that you have to, like we all do, we have to work on ourselves constantly to become who we want to be and, and see things differently, especially if we're coming from a background of trauma like that. How much has that led into the work that you do now in youth detention and your passion for wanting to help other people who've um, had a similar background to you and found themselves in a, in a similar position? particularly when I look at uh, some of the life, lives of um, the youth who I work with, I realise how privileged and fortunate I have been as well. Um, I was working in Aboriginal Health in the Northern Territory um, and that's when the, uh, the, the Dondale sort of Four Corners report had um, surfaced yeah. and so we started doing a bit of work um, with the, the, the Royal Commission, the response to that. And, and just so, for people who aren't aware, just mention a bit about what was in that report. It was a um, Four Corners report basically looking at the um, the use of tear gas and restraints and spit hoods on minors uh, and youth. The Royal Commission was basically to look at what processes there are in juvenile detention, particularly here in the Northern Territory, um, and look at what's appropriate and what's not on a systematic level on a um, programs level and on a policy level and there have been some really good changes um, but then. obviously it was noting that there were some very extreme measures being taken against very young people oh absolutely yeah absolutely and and that needed to surface that absolutely needed to surface um and i'm very grateful to be in a to have not i guess have worked um, in those centres or seen stuff like that, um, which is, yeah, it's absolutely horrible. Um, from what I've seen, it doesn't happen anymore up here, which is an absolute positive out of out of that. It shouldn't have to be a, a you know, sort of something to, that we even speak about or even consider, really. It should have never been like that. Um, but it's it, there's a broad systemic issue with... How did you then take that? next step um, from working Indigenous health to then going into detention centres and doing the work you do now? Yeah, so um, 
So I was kind of working up here and I was feeling a bit lost again. And this was before I had even known anything about uh, uh, the PTSD stuff. Um, and I had a relationship breakdown. Um, and then I basically um, got on the piss a lot. <laughs> and then I said, I need to change my environment. Um, I need to move. So I moved down to Brisbane. Um, where I was very lucky to have um, picked up a job where I worked across as a consultant um, across youth detention centres across Queensland, Victoria and NT. Um, and that was really looking at the support of um, youth, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth, whilst in detention and then transitioning uh, back to community. That was a massive eye-opener um, to see, I guess, uh, the realities, um, the different perspectives from community, from government, from frontline workers to the execs who make the calls in their um, ivory towers, um, politicians, uh, police and all that. And from doing that work across such a wide area of Australia, what are some of the things that jumped out at you? If you're trying to, I guess, um, punish youth for, I guess, are reacting to what their environment is it's actually not helping at all um we're, we're really looking at the recidivism rate so that's basically reoffending and going back into youth detention once there nationally it's something like 70 or 80 percent so once you hit that system it's actually doing more harm than good i know a lot of people have the opinion of yep chuck them in detention they've done wrong and, and i'm definitely not you know downplaying Anything that happens and that hurts other people, the system is essentially creating a mindset in youth and in families that's normalised to basically live a life that um, competes against your various policing systems and also sets you up to continue on going into youth detention, being disconnected from community, making it less likely for you to ever get a normal education to, to get work. And then the word I hate, I've heard it used quite a few times, it becomes a graduation to, to jail. And that's essentially what I've seen. Um, supports, particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth, um, is limited. There are moves that are um, being made which are positive in, uh, I know, just to speak about Queensland, they've got an um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultural unit, which can actually look at um, plans to support youth. There's a thing called the Koori Court down in uh, Victoria, and that's basically a, um, a community panel of Aboriginal people, elders, um, and they work with the jurors, uh, or the, the judiciary, um, and police and others, and they've got an equal say to actually um, develop support and action plans for youth instead of a sort of a case-managed, um, you will do this, you won't do this, you'll be breached for this type style. That's worked well. And just recently, I think there was a, um, there was a study out, and I know it was a fairly small study, I think it was about 11,000 or 12,000 people, but um, being the current climate, we have right now with the Black Lives Matter stuff globally. Um, this came out and it basically said that 75% um, of Australians have a, um, a racial bias against Aboriginal people, whether that be um, conscious or subconsciously. Now, if we look at the judicial system, there's an implicit bias against Aboriginal people, then 75% of that jury are going to consider the, um, the person guilty. So um, 
it's kind of, yeah, it's looking at those systemic stuff, which is where I learned that um, youth detention's one part of a much longer, broader system and, and journey. Um, but it's definitely a part that can accelerate um, particularly a young person to a life of being, I guess, incarcerated. And the numbers are very biased um, in detention as well. Of course, as you know, almost 100% of the kids in detention in the NT are Indigenous. And across the country, it's something like more than 50%. Um, And then since 2004, in Australia, the amount of Indigenous Australians incarcerated has increased by over 80% as well. Um, so you know, obviously we're seeing that flow on effect and then the fact that Indigenous Australians only make up about 3% of the population. When you see numbers like that, what do you what do you take from that? Yeah, and um, I think there's a you know um, another point to it as well is that we're still incarcerating kids as young as 10, um, which is massive. I remember being in a one at the youth detention centre a few years ago and um, there was a boy that would have, he was tiny, he would have been about 10 or 11. He was on the phone to his mum and I happened to just be overhearing the conversation and he said, mum, I met a new friend in here, Um, can he come over and sleep over tonight? He didn't even realise that he was actually stuck in there, um, which is huge. Another stat to bring into mind and um, up in the Northern Territory, it's pretty much 100% Aboriginal, 95% of the the year. Um, I've been coming in to the detention centres pretty much weekly, at least for the last year here, and I might have seen two youth who weren't. Um, But a lot of the youth in here are, are on remand and they're not sentenced. So basically being on remand means that you haven't even actually had your court date yet. Um, so you're potentially, and then, you know, if you want to take the um, presumed innocent for guilty side of things as well, you, you're already incarcerated and you haven't even had your trial, but you're already put into a system. Um, and that's 70% of youth are on remand. Um, it's nationally, I think it drops to about 50 or 60, but it's still very, very high. What that screams out is that there's a lack of support as far as bail support accommodations um, and housing and uh, infrastructure to actually look at a rehabilitative um, model of things as well. And I suppose it also presumes a level of guilt too um, that underlies Mm. society and the way we deal with uh, young people in that system where whether or not it's been proven that they have done wrong, we'll just chuck them in there anyway because we're betting that they probably did. Um, that seems yeah. to be the attitude that that portrays anyway. And, 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 you know, if we go back to the story of um, just me being that 13-year-old, 12-year-old that um, was taking all these bits of information and believing the world to be a certain way and normalised, um, or what we're doing by putting a youth into youth detention um, when, when they're on remand, we've got a lot of youth going in that are starting to believe the narrative. Um, And when you put them into a jail, you would definitely believe the narrative. I know if I ever was put in at at a young age, I'd be going back in and out because that was just normal. 
And what does it do to young minds to be put in that cage? When you grow up and you're being let down by people with authority and you're listening to all the narrative about um, authority and how it, I guess, interacts with um, people of minorities, then you're going into this youth detention centre where everybody's got authority over you. You build the hate, you build the resentment, you feel more lonely. So who's the only person that you can connect to and be on the same level? It's going to be the other youth in the detention centre. So if you're a 13-year-old and you're in the detention centre and you've got a 17-year-old with you and you're trying to connect, then you're also learning off a youth that may have been in the system for four years and you're normalising that. So once you're out, you've got this thing in your head and that basically you believe you are a certain way. You, you get told that you know what you did. Again, you're building that narrative in their head, building it, building it and building it. And what we see is that you grow into an adult that basically hates yourself. So what do you say to these young guys when you go and visit them um, all the time and you have these sessions with them? How do you get get through to them or try and listen to them and make them feel like they're actually being understood by someone who's not another youth in detention? It's a tough job, I imagine, because there's a lot of stuff that you have to work with and there wouldn't be a one-size-fits-all solution either. These kids would all have different things going on. Um, how do you go about it? I, my position isn't as a um, youth justice officer or anything with authority. Um, so I can literally come in on uh, on a level, I guess, a level playing field. Um, I actually stopped using the word mentor to youth and I start saying I'm, I'm, I'm your brother. And I said, but what I mean by when I'm your brother is that I respect you um, and your opinions as important as mine. Um, we might disagree on things. We can talk about it. And another thing too is that in a lot of Aboriginal communities, um, respect is actually silence as well in sharing space. Um, and it gets quite tricky, particularly where we've got um, people coming into centres and, you know, I guess the Western way is to be, you come in here for an hour as a Aboriginal person or anything else, um, you must perform this and this duties, have all these conversations, um, engage them fully, blah, 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 blah. But sometimes just to sit and share space, and for any human actually, is actually powerful in itself. And then we have those conversations when the trust is built up. There's absolutely no reason for any of these youth to trust me. Um, even coming in saying, I'm, yep, I'm Aboriginal, um, I'm from Carnarvon country, which is um, an hour south of Darwin and Benogram, uh, and family hail from Sherberg, this is my totem, talking like that, they still have no reason to trust me, except for how I respect them and hold space with them and don't put authority over them in that space. Now, I can do that, whereas I guess some of the other positions can't because they're statutorily um, obliged to do that. Um, but that's where things start working a bit more is when that respect comes because if you show respect and boundaries to youth then they'll start reciprocating back um i will have to say that you know that there are some people that work in um this area that don't have the right mindsets have more of a harmful mindset and do more harm than good um but there's also people who work in these spaces that are um absolutely great and what do you find when you break through to these guys and, and get past the walls a bit? What sort of things 
are leading them to be in the position they're in and and what do they share with you that you can tell is real and raw and something that they wouldn't say to someone else? Oh, look, it always goes back to, holy shit, these are kids. <laughs> like even with some of the um, working with some of the youth that may have um, been involved in some of the more violent stuff, um, it's, holy crap, these are kids. Um, they're looking for guidance. Um, they're trying to heal. They're trying to connect. Um, I'm very fortunate. They want to teach. They want to teach us about what they know and what and how they see the world. They want us to understand how they see the world, um, and they want to have those conversations. They're one of the biggest protective factors. Uh, factors is culture. I'm getting taught by so much about culture from these um, young boys and girls um, and uh, you know there's there's still a percentage of girls in these detention centers um, but culture is amazing I, I probably I learn something new every day um, and it gives those boys particularly who have those conversations with gives them power they're empowered they're telling me um, and that's something that in these systems that it's everyone talking to them now they're telling me and that's empowering um we're also able to sit down and talk about i guess what it's like to be um aboriginal and how to have conversations with people about things that frustrate us um the black lives matter stuff um came up with with the youth um because you know there's there's news that will be on and uh, sometimes we're able to watch that um and it brought up a lot of hurt and anger and but one of the biggest things is not understanding. Um, they they not understanding how they can articulate and be heard and feel important. And I think about and when I had those conversations about the Black Lives Matter stuff and and you know the um, someone one of the guards actually said, "Oh, well, you're here because of you." That that youth then wasn't heard. His his feelings weren't felt. Um, and I thought straight back to that that young kid that I was when I was chased by skinheads at 12, 13 years old. Um, and sorry, I use the term skinheads, but if you're a racist car of people chasing me and calling me words based on my ethnicity. Um, but um, I, I remember feeling how I felt when I went to um, the principal's office and telling him about what happened and not feeling heard. And I was frustrated. And then I see it with these youth. And I really think that you change the narrative to being, we hear you, and this is the way we can work through it. You start turning into that rehabilitative side of things and the less punishment side of things. And essentially that's what should be happening at this stage is rehabilitation. Um, and that includes, and I spoke about environment um, a bit as well, that includes support with their home environment as well. And people, if they are heard and they are seen and they can feel that and they don't feel invisible or targeted, then that's when you start to not want to attack. You start to want to connect and contribute and be part of something because you're not being neglected or, or being cast out. Um, and, of course, we're going to have that reaction uh, as as humans if we're being cast out from the group or put in a box or 
immediately judge before we even open our mouths or make any do any actions then um it makes perfect sense that we have this disconnect and this divide that we have um but yeah what what does it what does it take to get more kids to feel that way to feel like they're being heard because i mean you're just one you're one man who can only be in one place at a time having these conversations with these guys uh how do you how do you do it on a, a broader scale where um there can be more voices at, at any one time yeah and, and that's another like you bring up a um you know there's a good point in that is that there's the broader scale about being heard um and i guess um youth attention's one step uh in that journey um well it's a step that you end up in not through being heard but through the system i guess the um, judicial stuff um, but then you're going back out into community and you don't know what support could be there um what we really need is um i guess for that government that government are starting to i guess move a bit on um getting aboriginal and torres strait Islander perspectives uh into their leadership positions um there needs to be a very broad um i guess the thing is is that my role is i work within a system that works against um aboriginal people um so my role is limited to what i can do um but as a collective it's a educational process um where that in schools that you learn about, um, I guess in schools ensuring that teachers and principals and teachers aides um, have, I guess, the right narrative and the right understanding of um, the, I guess, the, the biases that we have as a society against different types of people. And I'm saying every type of person um, and using I guess identity from a very young age in, in your classes about talking about who you are in a positive light um, is really important. And then support for families in homes about having conversations with uh, young people. And the other thing too is having the infrastructure built. So community centres or places to go that parents can take their kids to and in a non-clinical setting, and that's a big part as well is that a lot of the support that's when it is received is in a clinical setting but we need stuff in a non-clinical way um we need something that actually looks at healing even traditional ways of healing um but broadly to be heard it starts from day dot it starts from teaching parents to to have to ensure that their kids are heard it's um teaching parents have to, have to talk to others so that the parents know that they're heard as well and getting into the schooling, making sure that schools are safe spaces for all kids. Um, there's cultural units and liaison officers and um, diversity officers and things like that, that, that work. But just looking at the system of what happens outside those school gates and what people uh, bring with them as baggage carrying in um, and understanding that there may be projections from from that as well um, is really big. Not demonising youth as well. Um, a lot of youth who go into youth detention are not wanted back at their schools. So then they're forced into this flexible learning situation where they're again put into another box 
So it's, it's about opening that box really and then realising that these are youth. Um, they've got very important things to say as well. They've got a lot of healing and a lot of learning to do, um, as we all do. Um, but, yeah, it's really – I think there has to be a massive, massive investment um, made. Unfortunately, what we're seeing, if you want to – Look at it from a procurement and contracting point of view is that a lot of organisations have realised there's, there's money in um, youth detention. So you've got a lot of non-government organisations um, jumping in to, to, and they may be well-meaning, um, but making a lot of money, but um, the families are still poor that are affected. Um, the youth are still struggling with a lot of things and these NGOs are getting richer and that's another big issue. Um, to be really heard, um, that's where you need your, your, your stuff like the Koori courts, the, the cultural units and youth detention. You need your Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community controlled orgs to be, um, to be leading things, um, working alongside. Um, and so I think it's eventually it'd be amazing to educate another generation and the next generation from ground up so that they see the world as they're important from day dot um, and then they they are eventually in those decision-making positions well said man yeah that's that would be great to see and it's something that takes time and it takes people like yourself being part of leading that new wave and just want to acknowledge you for the, the work that you do, which is obviously extremely important and must be lonely at times because there can't be too many others out there like you in the middle of the desert sometimes um, who've had the experience that you've had. But obviously it makes sense that you work in this area because it just cuts so deep from you, for you and you've been through so much yourself and now able to actually have a, a very serious, meaningful impact on other young people that you see yourself in. Um, so that must be hugely rewarding and important to you. How has your work affected your own healing and where are you at now with your uh, love for yourself and the way you see things? It's, it's, it's healed me in a way of that I'm not alone. Um, I've met some amazing, beautiful people um, through this journey. And, and, you know, I think one of the big things about this type of work is that um, – to really feel like you're making an impact, you've got to throw the politics, obviously acknowledge it, but you've got to throw it away. Um, so the, the, the left wing and the right wing stuff, just completely away and to say, okay, on a human level, we care. We actually want to see the best. Um, and then we can start having those conversations with um, what's your perspective. If I know that we both care and we genuinely care, then I'm happy to have those broader conversations with, oh, yeah, such and such was doing this, so we're going to lock them up for longer or things like that. I'm happy to have those conversations, whereas I'd usually shut down. For me to do that in this setting has actually helped me in my relationships, um, and I'm still pretty um, still pretty lousy probably in the relationship stuff, but I'm actually more open to having conversations because I understand myself more but I also understand there's other perspectives and there's a certain level of vulnerability um, that I need. And every time I go into the cell blocks with these youth, I really, I need that level of vulnerability. I'm quite honest and I'm, I'm quite real. And I'm, I'm actually also honest to say where, I've, where my weaknesses are. 
Um, and and another thing too is that a lot of the youth in these detention centres, they um, they've lived their life in that fight flight mode. Um, they've learned how to survive. They're extremely like smart at problem solving, mechanical things, analytical thinking. They just don't know it. And it's really been about reframing and that's what I've started doing with myself is I've, I've started reframing um, the ways I've been thinking about how I go to relationships, what I think about myself. Um, you know, I'm, I might be shit at footy and I wish I was so good. Instead of worrying about that, I say I actually really love being a part of a team and I actually find that you know, if I'm not that good at this, maybe I can be a better communicator on the field and that might make me, you know, because <laughs> that used to bother me a lot actually as a younger follow-up. But, um, but just things like that about finding the strengths. And I remember having a conversation with um, one young fella and um, he was a part, you know, we go back to the, the talking about when we get put into those boxes, particularly out in community about he actually was a part of a, what he called a gang because he, you know, um, the American culture stuff is quite big too. Um, that's probably another conversation. But um, he was a leader of this group, and then basically he was um, he was a leader, and he told me about what he did, and he told me because I said, "How does it all work?" I said, "Because at first, you know, I could have been dismissive, and and you know, when I used to talk to youth about." gang stuff three years ago I probably was a bit more dismissive oh you're not a gang but I actually sat and listened and um it was amazing what I had come to realize because and I had to pull him up because he said oh yeah you know um I don't you know you don't belong in a college shirt my family don't like we don't do this and that um which is quite a regular response from uh, a lot of aboriginal males and yeah. same for me is that we're all supposed to be um, carpenters and all those other physical stuff, footy players and this and that. So me wearing a collared shirt would actually mean I'm, will make me feel like I'm a sellout because we've been put into this box of saying as Aboriginal men, we're only good for doing this. Mm. Um, and actually I spent three couple of years trying to do trades um, before I found myself in a, this other work. But what this young fellow was telling me when he was talking about his um, his gang that he operated, was that he's got these amazing skills that wouldn't be out of place in business if he actually uh, changed the thinking and the mindset around it and actually believes in himself. He'd be perfect in a corporate world. So basically he was a leader, so he's basically a CEO. He had a team where he would pick um, strengths and weaknesses out of people. Um, out of his team so he had some of the bigger guys that did some of the brunt stuff he had a um a younger boy that would um pretty much do a bit of the um the tagging and stuff like that um they had a boundary um between the other gang now the funny thing with the, the tagging was that they had a marketing strategy he would tell the tagger where to tag and what type of message to be and making sure it was at a place that was visible that was clear about what they had and now his conversation with the other gang they had a level of governance because he said he'd only speak to the leader of the other group and the others um, if they want to speak about the other group they'd go through him through a communication um, strategy so they had a communication strategy a marketing strategy and a governance strategy and he and then he said oh yeah we we go on facebook and um we tell people what we do and what we look for um 
So it's practically was developing a, 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 a recruitment strategy. A business model. And, and yeah. And then so, I mean, basically I said, if you had a, enough support and scaffolding around you, you're already doing what CEOs do. And the biggest thing is you're, you're less of a crook than most of these CEOs probably are. <laughs> it's like you actually, it's amazing what you've done. And he was just like, what's marketing and governance for? <laughs> but he's already, he's already doing it. This is a 16-year-old. He could run an organisation. I'd work for him. Like it was just, um, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, that's really interesting. We can't just discount people's intelligence and skills and wants to achieve and aspire to things just because they might have made some mistakes or they've been put in a in a particular pigeonhole for a certain amount of time. There's people out there who have something to offer. They just feel like they can't or feel like they can't offer it in the traditional means because that door's not open to them. So we just have to actually make it a reality that it is and then show them that it is and then give them a hand up to show them how to actually get into that. And then there's, there's plenty of these people out there who are going to be able to survive and thrive in a way that's actually contributes and helps. Um, but they're not going to come to that without society leading them to it and saying it's okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it goes back to the solution is the educational pieces but re and reframing. Um, it's extremely hard to reframe something to a young person if they've grown up believing a certain thing and put into certain institutions in that way. And it just means that the absolute need is for that in intensive scaffolding, not just for the young person, but for their family um, as well. Most of society would never think twice about youth detention and, and what it's like in there and how it operates and how these kids are made to feel and think. So I think being able to speak to you and have you lay it out there and explain it is super useful. Uh, thank you. Um, I really appreciate that. And just to share one sort of positive, whether we're Indigenous or not, we all can be a role model for any youth. It can be in ways of just, I guess, looking at reframing how your narrative is um, and connecting and, and sharing space. Great, man. Another important point. Um, and the fact that, yeah, it's, it can't ever be us versus them. And any time that the mentality in wider society or any sort of group is us versus them, it has to come with that negative connotation. And it's not mm. one group's problem or one group's solution. It's down to mm. all of us working together and seeing all of mm. ourselves as, as part of this um, and not just passing it on and saying oh well, that doesn't affect me that's not re relevant mm. to me on some level it, it's relevant to all of us and we all have a responsibility to try and think more broadly and be more considerate and uh, know that we've got to do it together if you're a fan of the work we're doing or have a suggestion for the show please rate us on apple podcasts and leave a comment you can follow Young Blood Men's Health Matters on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and visit our website, youngbloodmedia.com.au, to stay up to date. And most importantly, if this conversation resonated with you, share it with someone you love and start a conversation of your own. This is Young Blood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.